0: I am Joaquin Welch, a student at University of Los Andes. I am a
1: 2020 alumnus at TFS Santiago, and you're listening to the Liberty and Leadership podcast. Hello and welcome. I'm Roger Reem, and this is the Liberty and Leadership podcast, a conversation with TFAS alumni who are making a real impact in politics, public policy, government, business, philanthropy, law, and the media. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Kurt Couchman, Senior Fellow of Fiscal Policy at Americans for Prosperity. Kurt is a longtime friend of TFAS, having participated in our summer internship and education program, then at Georgetown University, now at George Mason. He has also served on the Board of Regents Alumni Committee. During Kurt's career, he's worked closely with congressional members and committees, both as a staffer on the Hill and from external capacities. His legislative work has covered budget amendments, major housing finance, banking regulation, legislative transparency, advancing free trade, house rules reform, and insurance industry reform. Kurt is with us today to discuss lessons in liberty and leadership that he's learned. His commitment to public service and how his experience with TFAS has led him to where he is today. Kurt, thanks for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, Roger.
1: Well, Kurt, let me begin just asking you a little bit about your TFAS experience. I know you first attended as a college student in at Indiana University in Pennsylvania. Right. We've had some other great alums of our program from there, a few over the years. I know it's the home of Jimmy Stewart. That's right. Had the chance to visit there and see a ta- statue in the town square. That's really neat. And the... The Oscar, actually, in the hardware store, at least it used to be, hardware store owned by his father. Right. Do you know if that's still there? The hardware store is gone now, I think. Yeah.
0: And, you know, uh, even though I was there for many years, um, I have never been to the Jimmy Stewart Museum, so I've got to go back sometime.
1: Yeah, I've, I'll, I'll go with you because I right. haven't been there either, and he's one of my favorites. Uh, but you, how would you hear about our program when you were a student there and, and uh, kind of what led you to come down to Washington?
0: Absolutely. So I was a student at the uh, Indiana University of Pennsylvania's Robert E. Cook Honors College and uh, it's sort of like a an academically rigorous uh, subcomponent of IUP generally. And so some of my friends had done the program. They were political science majors. I was actually a music performance and education major when I started and I did that for five semesters. And uh, then realized that I wanted to do something more public service focused, uh, like, you know, what I'm doing now, essentially. And uh, I changed my major and my first semester as a political science student was the semester before coming to the TFAS program in 2002. Um, and so some of my friends were like, hey, you should do this program uh, in D.C. And I'm like, what's it all about? And they told me and it sounded great. And they had great experiences. Uh, I don't know if you remember Micah Savage or uh, Megan Dively. Yeah,
1: sure. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, Megan. And so they recommended it. And uh, Robert E. Cook had also endowed a a funding um, uh, program so that students could get um, some assistance to do, you know, uh, achievement or enhancement sorts of uh, activities. And so I was able to um, benefit from some of that. And that helped me come
1: down here and and learn from you all. And you... uh Uh, interned, you told me earlier, at the Ethics and Public Policy Center with a TFAS alum, I guess. Eric Cohen?
0: Right. I was so new to the world of political science and public policy that um, I didn't actually find out where I was placed. I guess maybe you guys had a hard time uh, figuring out where to put me until, I think, the weekend before I came down. Um, I didn't know anything about think tanks. I didn't know much about D.C. I knew that's where a lot of uh, policy and legislation happened, but It was a great opportunity. Um, I really enjoyed my time there. Um, The focus there that that Eric uh, Cohen was leading on was uh, the American Democracy and Biotechnology Program. So it was all about bioethics, and uh, it was really fascinating. He was an advisor to the President's Council on Bioethics. Uh, So I got to hear some really amazing um, thinkers and scientists uh, debating those issues and, and where we should go in different areas.
1: Well, I, I suspect that you didn't hear about your internship until the weekend before because we had so many organizations bidding for your services as an unpaid intern. Sure, so, we'll go with that. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, and you—you uh, you had an economics class when you were at uh, TFAST. Had, had you had economics before at Indiana? Yeah,
0: it had yeah. one class. The the yeah. prerequisite yeah. for the program. Yeah. Um. But uh, the more. I took economics and I had George sure uh, for the NICFest yeah. program here. And he was just incredible. Um, the comparative approach of looking at different countries and seeing, you know, what's worked where and what hasn't uh, was really powerful to me. Uh, you know, he had come from Lithuania, I believe. Oh, Latvia. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um, and so they had experiences with, um, you know, a command and control economy and how it just didn't serve the people. Uh, it served the rulers, but it didn't serve the people. Um, and, contrasting that with the it's not just American approach but the the the, fr- the free enterprise approach um, and letting people prosper and find their own way uh, we've seen what the the results have been and so that was sort of my my first comparative experience with all of that it's really powerful
1: yeah well, one thing that a lot of students of dr. Vixton's remind me years later is his emphasis on Joseph Schumpeter mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> concepts like creative destruction and uh, I'm sure he uh, incorporated that into the course, uh, looking at other countries and whether, whether capitalism would survive in this country. In your career, you've had a very interesting career. You've moved around a little bit, but working on the Hill uh, for two members of Congress, working off the Hill in think tanks, trying to influence Congress, uh, which you continue to do today. You've, be- you've become one of the cities, I think, leading budget experts and uh, dealing with issues of the national debt and deficits and the budget process. Uh, in, in reflecting on that, uh, kind of a question that relates to advice you might offer. Is it is it good to become an expert in a particular area as you have? I know, you know, I'm not trying to narrow your expertise down just to A narrow area because you've worked, you know, as you mentioned, on bioethics and a lot of other issues. As I mentioned in my introduction, but is it does it help in this town to become an expert in a particular area?
0: To a degree, I mean, it depends on what you want to do. If you want to be a lobbyist and have a lot of different clients, Mm -hmm. then it helps to have a lot of knowledge about a lot of different things. Um, If you're more interested in figuring out how to fix something, then you really do need to dive in, go deep, and figure out like exactly what's wrong and then how to fix it. And those are two separate skill sets. The the diagnosis and then the prescription. And, uh, you know, if you're working for a member of Congress and, you know, as I worked for two members of the house, you have a really broad issue portfolio. And the truth is that almost no one is an expert in almost any of those issue areas. What they become expert in is figuring out where to get the information so that their members can make an informed decision.
1: Yeah. And in your first few years out of college, you worked, uh, very extensively on energy and Mm -hmm. issues, right? Uh, yeah.
0: That's why I came to DC. Yeah. Uh
1: and those continue to loom large in sure. discussions, particularly the role of fossil fuels and uh, issues of climate change that are talked about a lot. Uh, do you still follow those issues very closely? or? I mean, some. Yeah. Uh,
0: we're, we have a true cost tour at Americans for Prosperity, where I am now. And uh, we're focused a lot on all of the things that are driving up the costs of living for the American people. And energy is obviously a big part of that right now. Um, the price of gas is up sixty percent or in June it was up sixty percent from where it was a yeah. year before that. Um, fuel oil, like heating oil, is almost double. It's ninety eight point six or something like that. Um, so that that's definitely um, part of the conversation that I've been involved with. Uh, inflation is another huge uh, discussion topic, and uh, um, I've been brought into that quite a bit. Uh, so I'm doing a lot of general economics work in addition to um, the budget process and you know reviewing budget related legislation as well.
1: Well, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, not a little bit. I'd like to deep in, dive into some of these issues about the budget process and just the whole fiscal situation our country's in now. COVID obviously had a big impact, but even putting COVID aside and that impact, you know, there's been no fiscal discipline in Congress for decades. Uh, the entitlement programs have grown with very little reform over the years, a little bit here and there. Uh, let's start with the basics here uh, because many people get confused between the debt and the deficit. Uh, Of course, both have hit records in recent years, but uh, where's the national debt now and does it matter?
0: Well, it's um, a little bit shy of our annual economic output as a country. It's um, I think around $31 trillion right now. Uh, And it does matter. Um, When the debt burden exceeds um, somewhere between 70 and 90% of GDP in this country because we have the the world's reserve currency Well, the primary one. It's not the only one Um, we can be a little bit more lax than some of the European countries, but um, that's when economic growth starts to slow and we're, we're already above that and we're, we're going North. Um, So that's uh, slowing economic growth. Um, It's putting pressure on the rest of the budget um, it's. I think it's making our politics more difficult because there's sort of um, this scarcity that's being imposed on the programs that have the kind of the most political interest, and that's the, discre- the so-called discretionary programs, or I call appropriated programs.
1: What percentage of budget are appropriated programs each year?
0: About thirty percent of spending. Thirty
1: percent is okay. what
0: is annually considered yeah. regularly.
1: Yeah. You've got this thirty-one trillion in debt. Uh, is that? mostly funded by foreign borrowers the chinese is it funded by people who buy t-bills or is it the fed kind of monetizing it
0: oh, it's or, been all of those things okay. um, china alone has about a trillion dollars of u.s debt that's owned um which is you know about three percent um and then the federal reserve uh, traditionally didn't have that much their balance sheet was about 800 billion dollars before the financial crisis, and then it went up to about $4 trillion uh, during that time. And then uh, over the course of the pandemic, it ballooned even further to about $9 trillion. And so when the Fed buys things, it's expanding its assets, and that increases the, the money supply. Uh, depending on how fast money turns over in the economy, and so that's yeah. a lot of the reason why we have inflation. Which is another reason why the debt matters, because um, it has driven the Federal Reserve to do things that are driving inflation. And now we're going to see if they're able to reverse course in a sustainable way and and you know take the inflation out of the system.
1: Uh, when when the government decides it's got to spend more, as it did during the pandemic. Uh, leaving aside whether it should have spent more or not, how is the decision made as to how to obtain the money, whether to sell bonds to the public or whether to monetize that debt? Is that decision made by Congress? Is it made by the Fed, mm-hmm. the White House, the Treasury? You know, how how do they decide? Because because, as you said, it has an impact on inflation. I assume Absolutely. if they just sold bonds to the public, you might not have the impact of inflation like you would if they monetize it at the Fed.
0: Right. So the the creation of debt is a fiscal policy decision that's made by the political branches, so Congress and the White House. Um, And then what the Fed does in response to that is whether or not we get inflation. Um, My view is that the Fed felt pressured into buying a lot of that because they weren't certain there'd be enough demand from the public. Um, And so they felt that they needed to step in and buy a bunch of that new debt. I think about 80% of the $6 trillion in new debt Um, that was created over those couple of years. And, uh, you know, that's what drove inflation. And now, even though uh, inflation is here and Congress is continuing to deficit spend, um, the Fed is trying to raise the interest rates and to reduce its assets enough to control inflation. But it's unclear to me how long that strategy is going to work if the Fed is simultaneously rolling off a trillion dollars in debt every year and kind of putting that back in the hands of the public, um, while Congress is also adding to the debt by the tune of about a trillion dollars or more every single year? Can it be absorbed? That's the question.
1: We, we had a speaker uh, come talk to our students this summer who was a colleague of years of sorts, I think, at the Cato Institute, Steve Hanke oh, yeah. from Johns Hopkins. And he gave a great Uh, Overview of this whole topic of how the Fed monetizes the debt, and touching on some of the things you said about you know it matters what the velocity of money is, how fast it circulates in the economy. Uh, He touched on some of the biggest inflation, well, currency debacles in history, from uh, Nazi Germany to Hungary, or the pre-Nazi Germany, I guess, started it. uh, Yeah, the Weimar Republic. Uh, I think he touched on on on, uh, several others that have occurred. Uh, and they, it's interesting because every example he gave that, uh, massive inflation, hyperinflation and destruction of the currency. It was a country by country process determined by their central banks. Basically, uh, there's this view today. I think that inflation is a global phenomena caused by either the war in Ukraine and, uh, the higher prices for oil but yet you do see countries now, that Japan, Switzerland, I think, and others that don't seem to have this problem of inflation that we're experiencing in other countries. So is it is it really just a country-specific problem that is based mainly on the central bank's decisions?
0: It's a spectrum. Um, yeah. I mean, Milton Friedman famously said that um, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. But then he goes on to say in the same quote that um, it's really about – the, the money supply growing faster than economic growth. And there have been real shocks to economic growth over the last couple of years, the pandemic, the war in Ukraine. Uh, those are real factors, and those are undermining um, growth. But um, you know, ultimately, it is the money supply that's driving this. The money supply grew by more than 40% um, from right before the pandemic wow. until a few months ago when I last looked at it. Uh, while the and, economy has only grown about 3% in real terms. So that that delta is the inflation we have seen and the inflation we're going to see over the next few years.
1: So you, you don't anticipate uh, this being a very temporary thing that's only going to last a few months? <laughs> no, and
0: I didn't last year either. I did not think it was going to be temporary based yeah. on the fundamentals.
1: Yeah, And uh, I hate to be like, I told you so,
0: but like when you look at the fundamentals and they, they tell a story, then – Denying that is sort of being out of touch with reality, and I'm not keen on that.
1: Now, let's shift slightly toward Congress and the budget process. Congress has a lot of control over these issues with its spending habits. Uh, It's got a broken process, from what I know. Uh, How does Congress come about putting together a budget? And is I hearkening back to Milton Friedman here, I remember Friedman used to be a strong advocate for some sort of tax limitation amendment Mm -hmm. that would require Congress to not spend Above a certain percentage of the economy. Sure. Uh, And that would require, that would force members of Congress, I guess, to set priorities. Mm -hmm. uh, Whereas now it's just a a wild spending spree. Uh, Yeah. Tell us about your work with the budget process and what type of reforms might help improve things.
0: Sure. So I used to think that all we needed was a balanced budget amendment. And I wrote the Business Cycle balance Budget Amendment for Congressman Justin Amash when I worked for him. I actually started working on that when I was at the Cato Institute in a conversation that um, mostly Bill Niskanen had with David Malpest, and I was just sitting there. Um, but that kind of inspired me to play with some spreadsheets, and that turned into that proposal. Um, and then I realized that um, constitutional provisions are more kind of principles, and you need you leave the details to statutes, the implementing legislation. So then I wrote the principles-based BBA for Dave Bratt when I worked for him. Um, And then that led me to think about what does implementing legislation look like. And uh, so I've been working on that for a couple of years. And I finally realized just, I don't know, a couple years ago that – you can have your destination. You can set your goals, whether it's balance or something else. But if you don't have a vehicle to get you there, then it's not going to happen. And so this is what I think is fundamentally the most uh, important fix to uh, the federal budget process. Um, Congress doesn't have a budget. It has 30% of spending that goes through the appropriations process. That's uh, also broken up into 12 different bills that range from about $7 billion, Ledge Branch, to $700 billion, defense. which is defense, right? Yeah. Uh, And that's not even all of the national security spending. That's kind of scattered in some other ones as well. So it's not necessarily coherent. Um, The entitlement programs that are driving the long-term deficits in debt and the spending growth, um, those are not considered on any sort of regular basis right now. Revenue is not in there either, and there's a lot of nonsense in the tax code. There's corporate welfare. There's stuff that just doesn't work well. There's this um, church parking lot issue that came about through some oversight in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That can't be cleaned up in, like, a regular process where members offer amendments and the committees are all contributing to the same thing. So what we want to see is for Congress to have a real budget. We call it a unified budget where all of the spending and all of the revenue is in one annual budget bill, um, where appropriations is the core of that. That's the most politically sensitive stuff. Um, but all the committees are contributing, and there's an opportunity for all the members to kind of um, start with that, that expertise that the committees have when putting the thing together and say, well – you know our priorities are such and such, and that's the value conversation about we want to have amendments to you know do less of this, do more of that, whatever the case might be, um, it creates an incredible vehicle for kind of rejuvenating Congress as an institution while also controlling our long-term uh, deficit and debt um, and uh, just making programs sort of more coherent and cohesive. We've got a ton of overlapping and duplicative programs that um, the current process has helped facilitate um, because it's just really hard. Um, to get to an omnibus or a CR or actual appropriations, which we haven't done in a while, um, in ways that actually involve anyone feeling any kind of pain. So they're all bloated. The programs just sort of build on each other and they're not coordinated. Um, with this sort of a everything together process, you can actually wrap your arms around it and manage the whole thing. We've talked to a ton of congressional offices, Republicans, Democrats, House, Senate, leadership, uh, appropriations, authorizers, and there's a lot of excitement about this because people just intuitively get it they see what happens in a lot of states and how much better it works, and they want to bring that up here as well.
1: No, you worked for the Set- committee for a responsible federal budget, defense priorities. Uh, they're, they're, speaking of those, and there's some others out here too. The Concord Coalition, I think there are groups that are made up of Republicans and Democrats, you know, moderates, conservatives, and liberals that seem to want to. They they recognize that we're going to head, head toward disaster if we don't tackle entitlements, if we don't reform the budget process, yet nothing gets done. You, why is that?
0: Yeah, a lot of these organizations do really incredible work. Um, the trick is, again, diagnosing and then prescribing solutions. And um, different organizations have different um, areas of focus. Uh, to figure these things out, you really have to spend a lot of time reading and thinking and analyzing, and you know that competes with publishing. Um, and so if – your model is to do a lot of writing and publishing um, and kind of analysis of current legislation, then that doesn't necessarily leave a lot of time for doing the deep dive that you need to. Um, There are some people that are doing that and uh, it's great to see, but uh, I think there's a lot more opportunity to um, bring folks together um, across, you know, the spectrum of people that are working seriously on budget issues. There's some people that aren't serious um, that, you know, you don't necessarily want to include but also um, there's not enough focus on making it worthwhile to members of Congress um, because, you know, people at home, they have busy lives and they are interested in healthcare and inflation and taxes and things that sort of directly affect them. Um, primarily, they do want the system to work. They don't necessarily know what is broken specifically and how to fix it, but they want it to work. So there, there is some appeal um, to people uh, throughout the country on that. Um, But if you're a member of Congress, you know, you've got to get elected every couple of years, and uh, you've got to raise money. And as Peter Van Dorn of the Cato Institute has has talked about, um, good public policy is a public good that is under-provided by the political marketplace. And so you have to have organizations um, that are – Um, specifically subsidizing of sort, not in the monetary sense, but to to members of Congress, um, giving them benefits uh, for doing the good stuff. And I don't mean like campaign contributions.
1: Uh, Recognition and... Yeah, and bring them everything. on your podcast.
0: Yeah. You know, give <laughs> yeah. them quotes when they do cool things so that they can, you know, circulate with their colleagues. Um, put their legislation in your reform agenda, like things like that, um, so that they're getting recognized and uh, and honored, frankly, for for doing the good work. And that kind of encourages them to keep doing it, and for other members to see that they too can get recognition for doing good things. But it has to be an intentional effort.
1: Mm-hmm. Just in the last, uh, I think, two months, there was another report. They get issued annually, I think, or fairly routinely, that show the uh, unsound nature of our entitlement programs—Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, it's in the it's the news for a day or two, and then it disappears. Uh, what is the possibility of some reform in the entitlements? Is it is it the third rail that won't be touched until we're too far gone, or can we hope for some sort of? Reforms that combine, you know, I don't know if it's means tests, raising the retirement age or what it is, it could be higher taxes, uh, which won't be popular with young people. But uh, how do you see those programs going?
0: There's no shortage of options fixing them social security is easier um the options are known and it's it's sort of a political will question a lot of people say uh, medicare and medicaid and other health programs it's more difficult because then you're getting into very different visions of what health care should be or what healthcare care policy should be um but under the current process um all of these programs that um, are out of balance and and honestly just need to be updated because it's been so long um they are out of sight, out of mind, and out of reach for policymakers that want to do much about it. If you try, then, you know, the appropriators don't want to have that in there because they see how difficult it is politically, and they, they want to get their appropriations worked, like, across the finish line. Um, so the the great hope has been fiscal commissions, um, and people point to the Greenspan Commission in 1980-something um, that led to the 1983 reforms for Social Security um, particular time and place. Uh, so Senator Romney has um, a bill that would create bipartisan, bicameral uh, commissions, rescue committees, he calls them, for each of the major endangered trust fund programs, so that Social Security, Medicare, and Highway, um, that would be uh, insolvent or depleted within the next 15 years. Um, there's another proposal, um, Representative Ed Case from Hawaii, and Senator um, Cynthia Lummis from um, Wyoming have the Sustainable Budget Act. And that's sort of a everything's on the table fiscal commission with the goal of getting to primary balance, which is balance other than interest costs um, within 10 years. Uh, I think – the most the the more important thing is to have an opportunity for members to become more educated about these programs, and that's only going to come if everything is part of the annual budget, so members can have that debate, have that discussion, learn things, um, and then kind of find a way to kind of chip away at some of the problems, so that like we don't have to fix it all in one year. We can fix a little bit here, different program a little bit next year, and just sort of keep having that conversation, um, and then eventually we'll, we'll come to some some mini bargains. Maybe there'll be a grand bargain, but we don't need that we need a series of mini bargains to figure out how to move forward as a country
1: well you you mentioned earlier that the national debt what the government owes from accumulating deficits is about thirty-one trillion. from accumulating deficits is about 31 trillion on top of that are these unfunded liabilities of these programs right what what is there an estimate of what the unfunded liabilities are
0: there are estimates, and they're huge. Um, Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute has done some really great work um, talking about the direct unfunded liabilities and then also the interest costs that will accrue in the future over that. And the fact is, he writes about this, um, almost all of the the, the fiscal gap – uh, in the future, um, that's the difference between future spending and future revenues comes from a handful of programs, and it's Social Security and especially major healthcare programs. So we've got to get a hold of them that's somehow.
1: That's like 100 trillion or something, right? It's about the, that. Yeah, the,
0: uh, estimates vary. It depends yeah. on the discount rate and all that kind of thing. Yeah. Larry Kotlikoff um, has estimated that the um, the total dollar amount of the difference between future spending and revenue, uh, including current debt, is about 100 and no, 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 it's North of $200 trillion, I believe. Um, of course, that's very sensitive to policy. If we were yeah. to change a little bit now, then that could reduce it pretty dramatically. So the sooner we act, um, the less painful it's going to be um, to do it. But of course, that means pain for current members. And you know, it implies that they're not kicking the cane down the road for future members for it to be their problem.
1: And And you said this is all dependent on interest rates and interest costs sure. and things like that. And right now, interest costs are going up considerably with higher interest rates, uh, that's kind of a big impact on federal budget, right? Yeah,
0: absolutely. Uh, we could very easily get into um, an interest rate um, death spiral, essentially, where you know, if markets start to lose confidence in the federal government's ability to make good on its promises, then that's a really ugly world. So I am desperately hoping we can avoid that, and uh, the key is to really put – a bunch of the fixes uh, on the table, on the shelf, ready to go. Like introduce this legislation, people aware of them, so that like when the moment of opportunity comes, then we can we can fix these problems and and change the path that we're on because the path we're on is really dangerous and you know the consequences for the American people would just be devastating.
1: Yeah, I, I saw uh, a piece recently, I think in the Wall Street Journal, that suggested interest costs in the annual budget of the federal government could top. I think it was nine hundred billion. If sure. interest rates go up to where we're seeing them go,
0: if they go and, up as uh, high as CBO is yeah, projecting, and yeah. some people think that that's a very low end estimate. Um, I mean, certainly if we get into a fiscal crisis, interest rates are going up way more than that. Um, so we need to get ahead of this before, like, we lose control.
1: And that puts pressure on that thirty percent of the budget that. The Congress appropriates every sure. year, including uh, defense. Yeah, and, including I mean, defense. there's some military
0: missions that may not make sense, and yeah. we should have those conversations. But like, that's not the thing that is driving the long term. I mean, every little bit helps. Um, yeah. There's some stuff in the discretionary part of the budget that um, that doesn't make sense, and we could get some savings there. Um, but we've got to have a way to grapple with all of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, let me ask you to uh, shift gears a bit now and, and, and go back to a few things related to your career. I know, first of all, I, I remind those listening that you attended our summer program in 2002 when you were a student. Uh, you were later selected as a public policy fellow for our, our it's close to a year-long pro, year program, uh, which uh, we, we've been expanding and growing the last few years. And then you served on our Board of Regents Alumni Committee uh, we're, we're grateful for that, of course. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, uh, your interactions with TFAS? I don't know whether you've had the opportunity to have interns from our program, but I know you've, you've, uh, you know, mentored students and influenced students, but, uh, T TFAS, you know, had a direct role in your career today?
0: Absolutely. Um, so I'm grateful for the fund for American studies and, uh, I have been involved. Uh, it's been, a great series of experiences. I have met a number of really amazing people and learned from them and just enjoyed, you know, company of people. Um, there are some that I'm still professionally connected to. Uh, I don't know that any particular job, um, that I've gotten has been directly from, um, TFAS connections, but, um, the reality is that this town is a lot smaller than people think. And, and lots of people know lots of people. So, um, I'm sure that, uh, I'm certain that my network um, overlaps considerably with um, anyone that's considered working with me. And uh, um, hopefully I've, uh, you know, made a good impression on people and uh, you know, people have positive vibes when they think of me. And I'm sure that like that has had an impact. Um, but the other thing is, you know, I, I have mentored um, any number of times uh, since i uh since about 2005, um, the year that I came back to DC and um I've I've also had interns uh in places where I've worked that have been TFAS um uh interns uh, even if I haven't directly mentored them and uh you learn so much by sharing your experiences uh with people you you know you're you're imparting advice and you're like you know what I should probably take my own advice on that like I need to be better about following up with people um I mean there's only so much time in a day but you know the people are are that's what we're all about right connecting yeah. with each other and sharing
1: well, I may have you uh, impart some advice uh, today, but let me first uh, uh, ask you to tell us a little bit more about Americans for Prosperity. I mean, a lot of us have heard of the organization, know what it does. We've had other of our graduates work there. I think we have some others working there now. Uh, what What's their mission and, and kind of what, what do they do?
0: Americans for Prosperity is a nationwide grassroots organization. Uh, we have a lot of capabilities. We have a, a pretty good-sized policy team. Uh, that we're helping um, kind of I'm on the policy team. I do budget stuff there, and uh, our job is to help advise the the federal affairs team and the different state teams. We have thirty five state chapters um, and they they range all over the country. We don't obviously have them in fifteen states, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but we're trying to make sure that the the investments go in places where they can have some some real return in terms of improving public policy. Um there's a related organization, um AFP Action that is more involved in the political side of things. Um but what we're trying to do is advance uh, freedom and prosperity and peace. We work on uh economic progress issues, that's the group that I'm part of, and that's that's part fiscal, it's part regulatory. Uh we work on healthcare reform, criminal justice, immigration, foreign policy, free speech, uh education. Uh, So lots of different things going on. I'm sure that I forgot someone and they're going to be mad at me. But but yeah, we're involved with a lot of different things and uh, our our state teams are involved with um, federal policy, but they also have state policy portfolios. And we were talking about the budget uh, things before, and it turns out that um, there are states that do things better than, than Congress does for sure. But every state can improve what they're doing. And so I'm, talking with a lot of those folks as well about like where the opportunities are in States to, to improve things. So it's a a pretty broad spectrum organization with a lot of different capabilities. Uh, We have an incredible donor network. Um, I'm not so looped into that, but uh, they, uh, they don't just like give money to, you know, good causes. They are actively involved themselves in talking about policy and, and working with organizations to, you know, advance the principles that we all share.
1: Have there been some, uh, I guess, people living or dead in your life who've had a strong influence o- over you, either in terms of your ideas or just in as as mentors, or in terms of your career path?
0: Yeah, um, there are a lot of dead people that have had an influence. <laughs> uh, you know, and do a lot of reading and then try to um, pick up some of the wisdom that's been passed down over the the millennia, really. Um, but within my life. Uh, I mean, certainly my parents, huge influence, and my sisters, um, you know, it's great when we all get together and talk about whatever. It doesn't have to be, like, what we do professionally, but just, you know, uh, all that. Um, in the professional context, uh, I think the uh, Robert Cook and uh, Janet Goble, the former director of the Honors College at IUP, um, made a huge impact uh, in, in terms of, like, helping me shift from this very role, sort of isolated um, uh background that I grew up in. Um, I mean, my parents are educated and all that, but like when you grow up in an area like that, there are things that you just can't even imagine being possibilities. And now I can't imagine those things for me to some degree. I'm sort of well on my career at this point. Uh, so my path is pretty well set. Um, uh, but for my kids, like I can imagine the sky is the limit for them. Um, and so that's really cool. Uh, here in DC, I mean, I've had a lot of great experiences, worked with a lot of wonderful people I think uh, working for Justin Amash was a really formative time. I worked for him for almost exactly four years. And the way that he uh, does business or did business as a member of Congress is um, he needed to know exactly what a piece of legislation would do, a bill, an amendment, a resolution, whatever it was, before he would take a public position on it. And so that meant that those of us on his policy staff, we read every bill. We checked all the cross-references. We found obscure laws that were somewhere buried in the statutes at large, and so it was like a actually a really intense uh, apprenticeship in statutory law, essentially. Um, so people often ask me, "Are you a lawyer?" And I say, "No, I'm an economist, but I worked for Amos, and so like I've got kind of an apprenticeship there too." Um, and so so, you,
1: there was actually a congressman who read the bills before they passed them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's a couple that that try to do that, but yeah. um, it's
1: hard. You don't time right.
0: There's not time. Sometimes they give you a multi thousand page bill with, you know, a day to review it. And um we did
1: re- review. A lot all of sleepless of nights, while. I take it.
0: <laughs> yeah, for a while, and then like it became clear that in certain contexts there was no way he was going to vote for a certain kind of bill. Um process was really important to him and um it's become really important to me as well, I think because of that experience. Um and uh so we didn't have to read massive bills that were dropped on us with no time um because he knew he was going to uh, vote against them anyway not only because of the process but also because like he was familiar enough with how they shake out that the, the policy was going to be problematic for him as well
1: yeah so yeah and he he was as i recall from the Grand Rapids Michigan area that's right how yeah. long did he serve for three terms four he terms served for five five terms, terms. Yeah. yeah
0: he uh, in his final term he became um an independent For a while. uh, And then he became the first libertarian member of Congress ever.
1: Okay. So I worked for him when he was a Republican.
0: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A libertarian, but, you know, had the name play
1: with a Republican. Right, right. I'd like to ask our guests uh, before we conclude these podcasts about advice they would give to young people today. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've shared some already. uh, But a lot of the students who come to our program, I'm noticing at least uh, the last year or two, are less ready to engage in, you know, the heated political arguments of the day, but they're, they're more career focused. They're thinking perhaps because of the pandemic that, you know, maybe opportunities will be more limited uh, than in the past, but they're here to kick their tires on different professions, government agencies versus think tanks careers. Uh, uh, you know, our, we have a journalism program. A lot of the journalism students, of course, are worried about opportunities in, in the media in the future because it's been shrinking so much. But, uh, can you offer some general advice to young people as they complete their college education about what they should look at if they want to come to Washington and make a difference?
0: The first thing is to figure out what it is that you like, because if you are doing something that you enjoy, then you'll be motivated to become good at it and talk to other get to know other people that are, are doing that. Um, if it's something that that you hate or sort of lukewarm about, then it's hard to um, to get up every day and do that and and continue with that. So I worked for Defense Priorities for a couple of years. A great organization, great people, um, great mission. I fully agree with it. I just found that I kept wanting to do budget and economics related things, like the, the those components of foreign policy, and it was more of a grand strategy organization. So um, you know, it just. Dawned on me that I should probably get back to budget and economics. That's how I'm wired for whatever reason. I I think that's the most important thing um, for students to learn. But um, that took a while to figure out. Um, So, you know, you might come to D.C., you might go somewhere else and uh, try something out and then find out, oh, I really don't like that. Uh, I interned for the public defender's office when I was in college and uh, boy, our criminal justice system is is sad in some ways. It's really uh, a miscarriage of justice. Um, But that's where I realized that I didn't want to be a lawyer. And I knew that like, there's a lot to potentially being a lawyer outside of the the criminal defense space. um, But it just, it didn't appeal to me. I wanted to kind of shape policy rather than kind of implement policy or, or sort of be within the system. I wanted to sort of more, uh, shape it. And, and so I guess, um, people have to figure out what they like and, uh, and go from there.
1: Well, you, you, as I recall, you mentioned at the, at the outset of this, that you had gone to school with a focus on music. Yeah. Uh, so you made quite a change from that. Yeah. Did you complete school with a major that involved music?
0: No. Uh, you know, and how it was,
1: was it voice as I recall? <laughs> it was voice. Yeah. yeah. I
0: was at one time going to be an opera singer or yeah. hoped to be an opera singer. It but...
1: Sound like you have a voice that would good for that
0: it's resonant at least yeah um but uh, i'm a bit out of practice um
1: yeah i gotta stop you just a second because isn't indiana university they have a great opera program there don't they or there's a there's a
0: that's indiana university bloomington okay but but there's
1: a there's a a famous Uh, opera singer from indiana pennsylvania renee fleming I believe. yes that's Uh, it renee fleming but that's not connected with the school
0: she grew up here i think
1: okay yeah okay yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry i i I'm familiar with her, and I remember she was from Indiana, Pennsylvania,
0: yeah, I mean, I love music uh I still do sometimes if you're ever driving by me on three ninety five or the beltway, you might see somebody in a white car just like singing at to the top of his lungs, and that might be me um but uh, you know it's about um the right balance in life as well i uh you know, I love the arts, um but I didn't think that making a career out of it was the right fit for me. I have a lot of different interests, uh, obviously, politics and economics, but also history and um, sociology and psychology and um, lots of different things. And so uh, I feel like what I'm doing now is able to harness a lot of that stuff, um, whereas if you want to have a, a successful career in the arts, then you need to be pretty laser-focused on it.
1: Well, this has been great because you're you're the example of advice I give to students, and that is that you can focus in a career on something, as you've done, a uh, number of things, but you can also uh, be a lifelong learner sure. and, and stay involved, keep your interest. I'm sure you keep not only your interest in music, but history and these other things. So uh, that's, that's advice I like to offer students. I uh, was, you know, be a lifelong learner, keep improving your skills and, and, and pursuing your passions, even if your day-to-day job is maybe focused in another area. Totally so, agree. Yep. Well, any parting words of advice or thoughts uh, before we conclude this, Kurt, it's been a great, discussion here and, and, uh, a little bit depressing when we get into talking about the deficit and these debts. Uh, but, uh, we certainly, I admire the work you're doing. I think it's vital.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It's been a yeah. pleasure speaking with you, Roger. I guess the, my parting words would be to have hope, to persevere. Uh, there are problems. Um, there's always going to be problems in human organizations and society. Um, but if you, uh, figure out, uh, not alone typically, but with other people that are also interested in finding solutions, then you can figure out how to make things better. Um, problems don't solve themselves. It requires human action to figure out what's wrong and, and how to go about fixing them and how to make that salient to the people that, that are actually making the decisions. But, um, you know, budget has not been a, an issue that has been at the top of the agenda for a while now. Um, it, uh, it was in 2011, 2012, and frankly, we missed that opportunity. The budget control act was not that great. Um, but I think the, the, the window will open again next year. And that's true with every issue. Um, immigration kind of goes in and out, criminal justice goes in and out, healthcare. I mean, the, the landscape is always changing. And if you want to be ready for, um, the opportunities, you have to have hope that, It'll come back around and you've got to keep working on that stuff and persevering um, so that you're ready to strike when the iron's hot.
1: Well, that comment encapsulates the purpose of this podcast being on liberty and leadership, because that is the trait of a leader. And you've demonstrated it here and that you're focused longer term. You aren't jumping on. It's, It's not the kind of person who runs to get in front of the parade that's coming down the street. You're focused on issues that will be coming back that are extremely important and uh, you're preparing for offering solutions that we hope uh, will eventually uh, return fiscal responsibility to our nation's capital. So thank you. Thank you for listening to the Liberty and Leadership Podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, like, or share the show on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, I ask you to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question for the show, please drop us an email at podcast at tfas.org. The Liberty and Leadership Podcast is produced at K Global Studios in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Roger Reem, And until next time, show courage in things large and small.